So we are continuing our series on the Beatitudes. It's called Blessed Are the Beatitudes. And we're looking at these eight Beatitudes individually and seeing how God blesses us in uh, living out those Beatitudes. Jesus taught these Beatitudes not just one time, uh, but throughout his entire three-year ministry, he continued to teach these Beatitudes over and over again. They're found at the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And if you want a really good location where you find most of Jesus' principles and teachings all in like in one place, I encourage you to go to Matthew 5, 7. You, you find them there. And this sermon that Jesus gives is often called countercultural. Uh, the way Jesus tells us to live as his followers goes against the normal way of thinking of what a blessed life looks at. When I think about these Beatitudes, what we tend to do with them sometimes is we put them on a pedestal. We elevate them. These are just too high to attain, these great ethical teachings of Jesus. And as long as we put them on a pedestal, we're missing the point. They weren't put there designed to be written in stone and put on a pedestal to be something to ascribe to, to attain to. Rather, they'd be part of our daily discipline of surrendering our life to the will of God and learning that through our faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ, that this is the way Jesus wants us to live. This is truly the life of blessing. That word beatitude is from the Latin, and it means to be blessed, a blessing. It means to be blessed abundantly extreme blessings, the abundant blessings. Who's surprised by that? I mean, whatever God does, he does in abundance, right? Abundance of his mercy, the abundance of his love, the abundance of his forgiveness, the abundance of his riches, his grace. No wonder the blessings he tells us are the beatitudes, the abundance of blessings that he provides for us. Now, I want to make a distinction between a platitude and a blessing, there is a difference between platitudes and blessings. What's a platitude? Well, a platitude is a meaningless statement that presents a shallow thought to a difficult circumstance geared to provide emotional support or comfort. Platitudes. You hear them. You speak them quite often. They sound good but they're not based on any solid foundation. They're just cliches that we parrot when we find ourselves or others in difficult situations. So I want to give you some examples of a platitude in case you don't know what a platitude is. <clears throat> I'm going to say a part of the platitude, and if you know it, would you fill in the blank, all right? Here's the first platitude. Everything happens for a... Okay. It is what it is. Good things come to those who? Time heals all wounds. When God closes a door, he opens a window. There are plenty of fish in the sea. What's that mean? Go back. All right, I heard that. Go back to the other one. That means when you've lost a relationship... You lost the love of your life. Oh, don't worry. There are plenty of fish in the sea. Right, that was the plan. Right. The sky is the... Sky's the limit. 
Every cloud has a lining. Every cloud has a silver lining. How many knew all of them? All right, most of them. We know the platitudes, don't we? <laughs> and it, it's interesting we know those, and that's just a sampling of so many platitudes that we use to make ourselves feel better in difficult circumstances. However, most of us discover they aren't true. They really don't work. And the reason they don't help is because there's no foundation to them. They're not built upon anything. So how about instead of us investing ourselves and learning all these platitudes that don't help, why not study God's Word and the Beatitudes that can absolutely change your life? The abundance of these Beatitudes, blessings that God gives us, are built upon the solid rock of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, our whole Christian life is held together by Him, right? Without Jesus, all this falls apart. But since Jesus is our King of King and Lord of Lords, since He is the one that, that He is the head of the church, we know that these Beatitudes work and is exactly what we need for our, our life, to live the life that's blessed. There's two words I want you to think about as I start this thought with you. These two words, since Jesus. Since Jesus. Since Jesus died for our sins. Since Jesus rose from the dead. Since Jesus ascended to the throne of God to become our mediator and intercessor. Since Jesus is returning as the King of Kings to put all enemies under his feet, where every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, then the way that he teaches us to live is absolutely the best way to live. Amen? Since Jesus. Since Jesus. Now I want us to look at these Beatitudes in light of who Jesus is. And see what he's talking about here when you look at this. That since Jesus died for our sins, the poor in spirit will have the kingdom of heaven. Since Jesus was raised from the dead, that those that mourn will be comforted. Since Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God, the meek will inherit the earth. Since he's our mediator in heaven, those who hunger and thirst shall be filled. Because he is the one that is our intercessor, the merciful will be shown mercy because all knees will bow to him in heaven on earth and under the earth. The pure in heart will see God and because every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, the peacemakers will be called sons of God and those that are persecuted will receive their reward in heaven. All this is because of Jesus. See that? Since Jesus has done these things, it makes sense that what he's telling us to do here is absolutely the right way to live. And the reason we know that is we, we believe that since Jesus did these things, that we believe that these to be true. I think we can put these in three categories. These Beatitudes in three categories. The first category is in developing our inward holiness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. And blessed are those who are meek. Develops our inward holiness. The next two Beatitudes, the hunger and thirst for righteousness and being pure in heart draws us to the upward love of God, draws us upward to the love of God. And the other three Beatitudes, 
being a peacemaker, being merciful, being persecuted leads us to those outward relationships of how to treat one another. No wonder these are Beatitudes, right? It covers the most important parts of life. It leads us and develops that inward holiness. It, it leads us upward to the love of God and leads us outward in having great relationships. And it reminds me of how Jesus looks at our life. And he looks at it differently than what most people look at life. If you study God's word, you quickly realize that the blessings of God pour out from who we are and not what we have. It's always blessings of God pouring from who you are and not what you have. Ask the average person, how's your life going today? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Well, what do you mean I'm blessed? Lord's blessed me. Got that new house I always wanted. Got that new car. Got that job I prayed about. Got in the school I wanted to go to. Got that 401k, matching funds. Got everything settled. Got everything going. I'm a blessed person person. And the world talks about being blessed in an entirely different way than the way God talks about it, right? The blessings from God is that God in reality gives us exactly what we need, and he pours his blessings into who we are and not what we have. Uh, Paul put it this way in Ephesians, God, look at this, how much has God blessed you? God has blessed us in Christ with how much? How much? Every spiritual blessing that comes from heaven. Every spiritual blessing. God knows exactly what we need. And it's recorded here in the second beatitude. Blessed are the mourn, they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He knows that we need this inward holiness. We need repentance for our sins. And mourning and repentance of our sins brings that comfort, that strength, that fortification from God that we need. Now, there's obviously many things in life that we mourn. And God is the one who provides the comfort for that as well. We were with Alice and her family yesterday at the graveside. Tremendous amount of mourning and grieving over that horrible, horrible act that was done to Audrey. We grieve with them. But we also believe, as Paul says, that God is the Father of all compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in any trouble so that we can comfort others in their time of trouble with the comfort we, are, we ourselves have received from God. God is the God, tells us numerous times throughout Scripture, who comforts us when we mourn. Jesus, on several occasions in his ministry, when he's with other people, and he sees them going through things that says that he was moved with compassion. You see, your God cares, he loves, he knows you, and he's very much involved in your life. But the beatitude here is specifically pointing to the mourning, the grieving over sin. A mourning and a grief that's categorized in three areas in the Bible. God mourns over our sins. Do you know that? God grieves over our sins. Second category, we are to mourn and grieve over the sins of others, over the sins of our nation, over the sins of our world. And the third thing we're taught is that we are to mourn and grieve over our own individual sins. 
Now, our own natural inclination is not to do that. Our own natural inclination is not to mourn over sin, but to do several things. We try to cover them up. We try to cope with them through counseling to kind of soothe our guilt. We try to sedate them with pills or alcohol or drugs. If that doesn't work, we legalize them. Think of the number of sins in the Bible that are in our national laws as being legal and right. I could give you one minute, and you could list five or six sins condemned by God that in our nation are considered to be right and legal. I bet you could name more than five or six. We don't legalize them. We may laugh at them. Challenge you this week. When you're watching that show you really like, when you're listening to the comedian that makes you laugh, when you listen to the songs that touch your heart, the lyrics, see how many of them laugh, make fun, ridicule, or mock sin. Just see. I think you'll be shocked. We don't mourn over sin. We, we cover them up. We cope with them. We sedate them. We legalize them. We laugh at them. If that doesn't work, we categorize them. There's the big sin, and there's the small sin. You know the difference? When you commit the sin, man, you committed the big sin. When I commit the sin, it's a small sin. Small sin. Am I getting too close to you this morning? <laughs> you can laugh. It's okay. I mean, but it, it's, it's the way we are, aren't we? Big sin, little sin. I, I got to tell you something. There is no such thing. There's no small sin because we don't worship a small God. Everything God does, he does in abundance. Everything God does, he does big. And so he says, if you just violate one of my laws, pick one, you violated them all. You're guilty of all. Thank God for his grace. You see, our natural inclination is to cover up, to cope, to sedate, to legalize, laugh them off, categorize them, and it doesn't work. It may give us a little bit of relief for the time being, but it does not absolve us of the condemnation, the mourning, the grief, the pain of the condemnation of sin. I don't want to be condemned in my sins, do you? I want to be comforted by God. And the only way to be comforted from my sins is to repent of them. God mourns our sins and we must mourn them and repent of them to be comforted. I want to take you back 2,600 years ago about to 597 B.C. Let's do a little bit of ancient history lesson here. It was an important year in the history of Judah. It was a mournful year in the history of Judah. It was an exciting year in the history of Babylon. The world's greatest leader, King Nebuchadnezzar, has defeated his arch enemy of Egypt, and now he has full reign over the Middle East and Egypt, and he can now go in and conquer Judah and any nation that he wants to. And Nebuchadnezzar marches in in 597 B.C., Marches into Jerusalem, God's people, destroys the city, deports tens of thousands of Jews out of the city to different parts of his kingdom, and 11 years later will return and totally destroy the temple of Solomon. 
A short time before this, a prophet by the name of Ezekiel, which we looked at a few weeks ago in our study on the prophets, was given a series of visions from God about how all this was going to take place. I want to turn your attention to one in Ezekiel 9 of these six men who are angels, who are warriors carrying battle axes of death. Ezekiel in verse 1 hears this loud voice calling from heaven. And it's calling for those six warring angels, these six warriors, to come to the city of Jerusalem. In verse 2, after the call, we find in verse 2, they suddenly appear. These warriors that come to bring judgment into Jerusalem and death for the sins of the people. It's interesting how history talks about this. In your history book, it will never say that these six warriors showed up to destroy Jerusalem. It will talk about King Nebuchadnezzar having full reign now to be able to go in and conquer this area. Nebuchadnezzar is the great one. He's the one, he in fact calls himself the mighty one, doesn't he? Little did he know he was just a pawn in the hands of the sovereign king of kings, the great God, who is going to use him to carry out the will of God. When you read the accounts by the prophets leading up to this, you'll see how God had been patient for hundreds of years trying to get his people to mourn and repent over their sins. This was not just a spur-of-the-moment thing. Years and years and years he'd given them ample opportunity. You need to mourn and wail and grieve over your sins. But you know what they did? The book of Jeremiah, read it. They laughed. They said, we're not going to repent. And now the time had come and those six warriors show up marching towards the city. And in a short time they will use the army of Nebuchadnezzar to lay waste to that city of God. Now look again in verse 2. One of those angels had something more than a battle axe. He had a container of ink, this ink horn. And all these angels went into the temple by the bronze altar. Look what happens next, verse 3. God shows up in his glory. He then calls that angel who has the ink horn of ink, and he gives him this message. Now here's where we are, right here. Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who do what? Mourn and cry over all the abominable sins that are done within it. In other words, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem with these warring angels. But the angel that puts the mark in the forehead of certain people, they will be saved. Who are the people that are being saved? The ones who are mourning and grieving over the sins of the nation. The ones who had the same heart and view of sin that God had. And God saved them. God had given them time after time to repent, and they refused. And in verse 5 and 6, God says this, Do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. You're going to start right here in my household. We're going to judge sin right here in my people first, and then we'll extend it out. Reminds me of Peter later on who said, Judgment of God begins in the household of God. When you call for God's judgment, he'll say, fine, but I'm starting with you first. See it? Mourning and wailing and grieving. 
God mourns over our sins. God blesses those who will mourn over sin. And that's so evident here in this story. And that's why Jesus says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. God is never repulsed by your repentance. God never despises a person who repents. God never condemns a person who repents. Get it? Comfort comes from God when we give repentance towards him. One time Jesus entered Jerusalem and he gets in that city and he sees the people carrying on about their everyday life, totally oblivious to the things of God, doing their festivities, doing their things of life, and he sees their sin and it's the shortest verse in the Bible. And you know it, don't you? The shortest verse in the Bible is, Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He mourned over the sin of the people that separated them from God. But here's the good news. And what is the gospel? Good news, right? Here's the good news. Jesus did more than mourn about your sin. He went to the cross to conquer your sin, didn't he? He went to the cross to turn your mourning into the joy of salvation. To be saved from your sins if you believe in him and confess his name and repent of your sins and be baptized into his name to receive his grace. What Jesus has done for us, that turning us around. I think about King David who tried to cover and legalize his sins, didn't he? Tried to do everything he could to cover it up. And he was in misery. And he was in, under condemnation. And then he turns to God. See what happens when he repents. Two Psalms here. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are what? Crushed in spirit. There is a mourning over sin that goes much deeper than any physical pain. There is a mourning over sin of such deep anguish of the soul that nothing, no sedation, no counseling, no laughter, no legalization can ever, ever soothe. It's that deep, soul-wrenching. David experienced that. Heartbreaking, crushing. That's what sin's ultimate design is, right? Sin brings forth what? Broken-hearted, crushed spirit death. Where there's meant to be life. Sin can break your heart and crush your spirit by the weight of its condemnation. And yet David repented. And when he repented, he found that the Lord drew close to him, right? And he healed his broken heart and he got rid of that crushed spirit. Just like he'll do for you. The, law, the Lord draws close to you and re you repent. With repentance, the condemnation is removed and the comfort of God is given. God is not repulsed by your Repentance. He rewards you for repentance. That other psalm, Psalm 51, verse 17. Once again, the aftermath of David's sorrowful grief of his sin. Blessed, notice this, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not what? You, do, you will not despise. You will reward a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And that's what David found out. That's what Jesus means here. Blessed are you when you mourn, for you will be what? You will be comforted. 
When Peter was speaking to a group of people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, he told them this message. You had Jesus in your life and you put him to death. This Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Savior. He is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. He is the Son of God. It says when the people heard that message, they were cut to the heart. They were absolutely brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, and they asked, what can we do? Peter did not say, it's over for you. Man, you blew it. God despises you. He's repulsed by you. Peter did not say that, did he? He said, and led with this word, repent. Repent. God rewards repentance. Oh, but we put him to death. What can we do? Repent. Put your faith in him. Confess him as Lord. Be baptized into his name. Become part of his kingdom. Do something about it. This is what the good news is for us. God comforts those who mourn over their son, sins. Now, I want, I want to tell you something. You may already know this, but let's just remind ourselves. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. There is a big difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Let's, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 9 through 11. See the comparison. What does godly sorrow do? And I'm going to ask you, which would you rather have? You don't have to answer. Godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? Is there that big of a difference? Let Paul tell you. Godly sorrow brings what? Repentance from sin. God rewards repentance. This leads to salvation. It leaves no regret that godly sorrow will produce in you earnestness, eagerness, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, and a readiness to repent of our sins and be right in the eyes of God. Now, you know what the word repentance means. It means to do what? Turn around. You're going in one direction and you need to make a U-turn to go in the other direction. The godly sorrow produces a U-turn in your life. You are going in the wrong way, and now you have this eagerness, this earnestness, this indignation, this alarm, this longing, this concern, this readiness to get back in the right direction. And that changes your behavior. That's a godly sorrow. How many of you want a godly sorrow? See, that's what it is. There, this so different. Now, Paul says about the worldly sorrow. Here it is, very short. Worldly sorrow brings what? Death. There is no U-turn with the worldly sorrow. There is no repentance. Remains unconfessed sin and unrepentant heart. Brings condemnation, not comfort. Brings judgment, not salvation. And you're left with full of regret and remorse and guilt and judgment. It may leave you bitter it may leave you feeling wretched, miserable, and in despair. That's the worldly sorrow. Which one do you want? Which one gives you a life of blessing? There is no lasting comfort in a worldly sorrow. Now, you'll find moments of ease, and you'll find ways to not be weighted down all the time with this, but it never goes away. It's still that elephant in your room. Are you with me? Godly sorrow, worldly sorrow. 
And Jesus says, that's what this blessing means. Those who have a godly sorrow, those who mourn, they will be comforted. Now, I've already told you in this lesson, in the lesson of last week, that what you must do is accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, by God's grace. You got to make yourself poor in spirit, get rid of the pride, humble yourself before God, put your life in the life of Jesus Christ, put your faith, hope, and love in Him, believe that He's the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess Him as Lord, and be baptized into His name to have your sins washed away. But what about you who are a Christian? And you find yourself in a heap of worldly sorrow and not the godly sorrow that you need to have. You're trapped by it. It would be so unfair of me today to leave this lesson and not give you some practical steps. So I want to give you from James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10, I think some very practical ways that you should mark down and write down and remember. First of all, you've got to submit yourself to God. You have to get rid of your pride, quit covering up, sedating, legalizing, submit to God's way, and confess. And the Bible says Jesus is faithful and just to forgive all those, right, who will confess their sins. He's faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Second thing you have to do is resist the devil. Now, let me ask you, when you resist the devil, James says, what will happen? He will flee from you. He will run from you. See it? Well, I'd like to have some of that, right? Now, notice the steps. You have to submit before you can resist. If you're out there trying to resist the things you don't want to do without God, the devil's like, who are you? He's going to laugh at you. He's not going to stop. But when the presence and the power of the Almighty God come into your life to fortify your life and you resist God through, and resist the devil through submission to God, the devil says, I'm going to go work on somebody else. I'm running from this. Third thing, draw near to God and he'll do what? He'll draw near to you. How, how do I draw near to God? Let's get practical. Pray. Pray. <laughs> Pray. How else do you draw near to God? Got to be in His Word. There should not be hardly any time in any part of your day where you're not in the Word of God. You need it. That's how you draw near, how you submit, how you resist the Word of God. And worship. Worship the Lord your God. Worship Him. Serve Him only. Now here comes the repentance. Here comes the U-turn. The longing, the earnestness, the eagerness, longing to, to change. Here's your change behavior. You will then begin to wash your hands, you sinners. See it? When do you wash your hands? It seems like we're told to wash our hands like we're in kindergarten. Every time on TV now, right? Wear your diaper on your face and wash your hands. It's like, man, everybody feels dirty, right? Did I say diaper? I, I meant to. Anyway. <laughs> so, anyway got to wash your hands, get the dirt off them, right? Man, in our hearts, when you submit, draw near, and resist, you begin to look at your behavior, your actions, and want to wash it, get rid of it, right? I want to purify my heart. Repentance is more than just an outward change. It's internal. I want to purify my heart, not be double-minded, I want to be double-minded. I want to quit making excuses. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other. Make up your mind. 
how you want to live your life. If you want to live for God, let God purify your heart, wash your hands, do what he has for you to do so he can comfort you. Now, now here's the attitude. Here it is. We've been building towards this. Here's how it ties to the beatitude. Grieve, mourn, and wail. See it? Grieve, mourn, and wail. No excuses, no escape, no justifying, no playing the blame game, no self-pity. Let the weight of that sin sink in and you grieve and you mourn and you wail over it. You change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. In the Old Testament, they got to do symbolic things, didn't they? When they were mourning and wailing, they'd put on sackcloth and ashes and sit around, right? Why do we have to change that? Sin brings forth what? Death. That's the grief, the mourning, the wailing. Have I depressed you yet? At a funeral, you don't see much laughter, but you see the grief over the death. Listen, I'm just telling you, sin is not something to be laughed at. Sin is something that has consequences. And when you realize it, the consequences, and you suffer the consequences for it, it takes the smile off your face and the joy out of your heart. Amen? So he says, now humble yourselves, make yourself poor in spirit before the Lord, and here's the good part. What will he do? See it? He will lift you up. Man, you need to write James chapter 4, 7 through 10 down and get so familiar with this. You can use this so often in your life in a comfort to God. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We'll look at that word comfort as we close. The word comfort comes from two words. The first part of the word means to be with or called alongside. And you see the second part of the word comfort. What's that word? It's fort, strength, to be fortified. When God says he's going to comfort us, it's more than just wiping away your tears and giving you a big old spiritual hug. It's saying, no, I'm coming alongside you with your repentance. I'm going to draw close to you. I'm going to strengthen you. And I'm going to fortify your life. Is that powerful? Jesus said to his disciples, when I leave here, the Holy Spirit will come here upon this earth but Jesus did not call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit in that context. He called the Holy Spirit the what? The comforter. The one who comes alongside to fortify and to strengthen us. See it? When we submit, when we draw near, when we humble ourselves, God draws near to us. He fortifies us to resist the devil, to change our behavior, to purify our thoughts, and to lift us up to turn our grief and mourning into joy. That's what I love. Psalm 30, verse 11. You turn my mourning into what? Dancing. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. That's what Jesus wants to do for you. To turn your sorrow over sin into the dance of salvation. That's what he does. Don't stay stuck in that world sorrow that's there, that worldly point of view. Let God bless you by comforting you and turning your mourning into praise for him. Amen? Amen. Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be strengthened, fortified, encouraged, lifted up.
by God. Amen. Well, I hope this lesson has been an encouragement to you in your daily walk with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we end every Sunday morning lesson with an invitation, and offer for you to respond. If you need to respond, please write to the email address on the screen or get hold of your shepherd group leader. They'll get with you as soon as possible. If you're here this morning and would like to respond, please make your way to the front bench and one of our elders will meet with you right now as we sing this next song. Let's stand.